This episode of the American Farriers Journal podcast is brought to you by Penwood's Equine. The folks at Penwood's Equine are excited for you to hear about their new foot quality product, Essential Rescue. When you've exhausted all other biotin or foot quality products, this will be your go-to because it gets results in an incredibly short amount of time. Maybe you have multiple horses and everything you're doing seems to be working for them, except that one horse. No matter what you try, nothing seems to help that horse. We've all been there. Well, Essential Rescue is a product that you can add to whatever you're already feeding to achieve great hoof quality results. Through our own research and reports from our customers with their own horses, Essential Rescue can help deliver significant improvements in just one shoeing cycle. And for a limited time, Penwoods is offering free shipping on Essential Rescue when you buy from Penwoods.com. Welcome to the American Farriers Journal podcast. I'm Jeremy McGovern. It has always been important for us here to share business advice with you from other farriers. And considering what's going on in the world, we wanted to make sure to include some of this topic in this podcast episode. I've always appreciated the business insight from Bob Smith, so I chatted with him on the subject. As the owner of the Pacific Coast Horseshoeing School in Plymouth, California, he's provided this information to his students through the years on strategies and tactics for operating solid farrier businesses. However, I also think this is good evergreen advice that suits established businesses as well. We also talked to Bob about other areas of horseshoeing and his legal battle going on with the state of California. Tell us a little bit about how you first got into horses and then horseshoeing. Well, uh, I think like a lot of guys, uh, when you're young, you got into horses because of girls. My grandfather had a ranch in Wyoming, so we had horses there. Horseshoeing, it was kind of a second thought. After high school, our senior class trip was Southeast Asia. So that's that's where we ended up going. And uh, I came back. I, I went to the California State University, Sacramento. And I was a pre-law student. And after I graduated from the university, uh, I took my LSAT, the entrance exams for law school. And I was accepted, but I had absolutely no money. I was completely broke. So I decided to go to a horseshoeing school so that I could pick up this time-honored profession and uh, work my way through, uh, through law school. I can remember my grandfather called me and was just furious that I had paid money, $1,500 I'd paid to learn how to shoe horses when he said he'd pay $1,500 if somebody would promise he'd forget. But uh, started shoeing, uh, got out of school in uh, February of 1974 and uh, just fell in love with shoeing horses as a way of life and, and a way to make a living. I never did uh, go to law school. I went back and did, did some graduate work with Doug Butler at Sawash University in 1979, but I've been in love with this profession since 1974. What in particular did you pick up in horseshoeing school? Well, not a lot. The school I went to, Ralph Hoover was the, the guy that I signed up to see, but Ralph Hoover had, had unfortunately committed suicide, and so it was left to a variety of other people. And so I, I was just, I was so unprepared. Um, when I got When I got out of school, I was driving through Sacramento. Uh, I had dropped one of my classmates off up, up north, and I was driving back through Sacramento, going to Southern California, where I wanted to start a practice. And I was totally ignorant of what we didn't we didn't have that much instruction when I was in school. I broke an axle in my truck and spent every dime I had getting that thing fixed. And I bummed a, 
a, a place to stay with my aunt. Uh, she had a friend at work that needed a horse shod and got my truck fixed and went over there to shoe the horse. I only had uh, enough money to buy four shoes at the local fair supply house. That was a horseshoe barn by, owned by different people then. And so I got out there about uh, 9.30 in the morning and started shoeing her horse. She got off work at, uh, at 5.30. And I finished shoeing the horse at 6. So that was a few hours. Uh, she gave me a $12 check for shoeing. And then I took my overcab camper with all my gear and uh, parked out in front of a Bank of America parking lot all night. That got a lot of stop by sheriff's deputies. But I had no gas, no food, and a $12 check. So uh, that's how I started my, uh, my shoeing career. And everything else from that was kind of self-taught. Yeah, was that... Uh impactful for you to to not have any money to have that check depending on the the bank opening and no fuel in your your truck yeah well and, and i can you know as i struggled through the the early part of my career i can i can remember having my first 100 dollar day and i remember telling myself that i only had to work uh four days a month one day for for the rent that would pay uh, the rent on the house i had uh one day 100 dollars for groceries that last me the month and then uh, $100 to, to go out and dance and party and have some fun and $100 to put in savings. So I thought uh, life was pretty good at that point in my life. I think you've developed a really good reputation for, for solid business advice. What was the turning point in your career to get from that mindset of I only need to work for four $100 days to you know more of the better business practices that you deliver now? Well, it's what I call the discovery method. You learn by trial and error and, and mostly by error. And so I, I, I started shoeing, and, and a, a couple of, of things hit me when I was shoeing. Um, one was that, that people don't, a lot of people don't care about your personal uh, safety and comfort. They just want their horse shod. You know, I found out that those are people that you, that you really can't work for. Um, I found out that if you do something in business, you have to continue to do it because if you take it away, like dressing the foot. Well, when you start out, you polish up the foot and put hook dressing on it. The moment you stop doing that, even though it's just cosmetic, um, the clients will, will take things away from you. They'll, they'll fire you because they think that you're not giving them the service. And I was shooting a lot of bad horses back in the in the mid and later 70s. They were livestock then. And when I went to graduate school with Butler, I came back and I decided to, to get serious about shooting. I was going to reinvent myself and become a professional farrier rather than just kind of a cowboy hanging around and, and doing ranch work and bad horses. And... Uh, I just read everything I could read uh, about business, about a service-based business. And over the years, I just developed a, a plan for my life and started noticing friends that were shoeing horses and other people in self-employed positions and taking note of what made them successful and what made them unsuccessful. And uh, I just kind of honed a style from that. How impactful was Dr. Butler on the business side for you? I don't know if he was impactful on the business as much as he was impactful on the idea of being a professional farrier. Rather than just kind of a backyard hoof hacker, cowboy shoer, the idea of, of this as a, as a profession that um, you could support your family with, that you could buy homes, buy cars, run as a business, as opposed to just having a lot of fun shoeing horses. Uh, and so it, when I was driving back from Texas, I gave a lot of soul searching to the idea that, that this is what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. It wasn't just something I was going to do in my 20s and then find something else to do. I really loved shoeing horses, but in the idea that uh, that you can only shoe so many horses a day physically, and then that's going to dwindle as you get older. How do you make more money shoeing horses and doing less work? And, and those types of things I really stuck in my mind for several years after I came out of school with Butler. 
What was the uh, work that you were doing with him down in Texas? Well, he had a, at Ross University in Alpine, Texas, he had a graduate program for a master's in farrier science. And so this was an abbreviated uh, course that he had, and you gained units toward your, your master's degree. And so we had a, a combination of uh, lecture in the morning, courses in the afternoon, and boards work in the evenings. And it was uh, designed to, to give you an edge and plant the seeds that obviously worked on me. So what was the horse culture like in that area of California, the Sacramento area, sort of in the, the mid-70s, late-70s? Well, it was uh, a lot of livestock considered. It wasn't really the, the companion animal types that was here. Sacramento has a, a very large horse population. It's, it's an area where everybody that lives in, in, the, uh, in the rural part has two to five acres, uh, lots of those little ranchettes that have horses on them. And uh, same thing as today, lots of little girls, you know, 12, 13, 14 years old that have their little horse. Um, the show industry wasn't super big. We had Potomac West here as a big facility, and then uh, I had some other barns, but it, it was more laid back. It wasn't until the middle to late 80s that some really large barns and professional riding and professional shoeing started coming. You had to go to the San Francisco Bay Area to, uh, to get the good barns. Can you tell us a little bit how you made that transition from being a working farrier into also running a school? Yeah, that was, a, that was an interesting thing. I, I, I love to shoe horses, but as I was uh, heading uh, into my 40s, you know, you start to notice a few more aches and pains. And uh, and there was farriers that just get injured. And, and then their career's over. What do you do? What do you do? That's all you've done for a living, so where do you go? And I thought, well, two things occurred. One, I had a lot of kids that would ride with me. In the 80s, I'd have them they'd come out of a horseshoeing school, come to the area, spend some time riding in my truck with me. And I found that they really hadn't been trained very well. They'd usually been trained by some 18-year-old kid who went to the program before them. Uh, and, they, and they'd never shod horses for a living. So they, they didn't have the relationship with clients and veterinarians and trainers. And after they spent a few weeks in my truck, invariably, they would, they would move on and say, boy, I wish that, uh, that you would have taught at my school type thing. And that planted a seed. My original intent was to uh, open a school in the early 90s, get it up and running, hire some people to run it, and go back to doing what I love to do, and that's shoeing horses. Uh, but I found out uh, I entered a new phase in my life, and I really, really enjoy teaching. I really enjoy watching, uh, watching these guys go from not knowing how to light a forge to, at the end of the program, forge building bar shoes to feet. And, and uh, that progression is just amazing. What's the key to being a good educator? Uh, what's the key to finding out how different people learn and, and trying to address that uh, with your students? Well, I think I, I had the uh, advantage that uh, two of my daughters are adopted, and they both had uh, they, they were both special needs kids with severe learning disabilities. And so I, I got really uh, aggressive in reading different learning styles and how to reach these kids, make them to be the best they can be. Uh, they're in their 30s now, and they're living on their own, and they're, they're hanging in there all right. And the other part of teaching is, is that you have, to, you have to be able to speak with the intent of being heard and understood. Not, not enough that you know the material and you can stand up in front and talk to people about it. You've got to be able to, to check with them and, and make sure they're getting the material that, that, uh, that you're giving them, that they're retaining it. And so uh, that's just a lot of personal interaction with my students, going around and talking to them one-on-one, -on -one, finding out whether they picked up something from that lecture they didn't, uh, a lot of questions to ask to see whether they, they retained it. And then I've got 
all different ways to, to, to teach, like the anatomy. We can, we've got all kinds of colored drawings of the bones, and we've got uh, a lot of, a lot of uh, displays uh, in the classroom, a lot of them from Allie Hayes. Uh, and the students can, can play with those things. I pass bones around, pass shoes around. I just don't stand up there and, and uh, passively lecture. I, I try to make the, the classroom as interactive as I possibly can. What's the uh, biggest difference or biggest change in students that you've seen over the years? Oh, gosh, now you're going to get me in trouble. <laughs> um, and I don't, you know, I hate this. I don't want to sound like the old guy. Because I can remember the old guys talking about, yeah, the young people. Blah, 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 blah. But um, I think that, that there's not that drive. I don't, uh, the kids that come through my school, they're, they're not really hungry. Um, they don't have the drive. Uh, they seem to have small little obstacles will just make them throw their hands up and stop. So I, I, I must be a different generation, but uh, we could do a lot of pushing. There, there's times when we'll go out with a class and have gobs of horses. And I go, look, we got one more horse going. You three guys have finished your shoeing. We got one more horse to do. Who wants it? And they just look at the ground and walk off. And then I got to assign it. But I don't know. I just, I think that the, I think the comfort zone with them is an area they don't want to leave. Is that something that it's easy to teach out of or impossible to teach out of, or is it, it just ingrained? Well, it just depends on the individuals. I, I try to be as motivating as I can and light fires all over the place with some of these guys. And I'm, I'm surprised at times when I get a call back from a student who's been gone for three years and find out that maybe something I said kind of resonated with them. And, and uh, you know, it's kind of like raising kids. You just kind of plant seeds and hope they're going to grow. Uh, it's only an eight-week program, and so there's not enough time to really, really work these guys. Uh, I invite them back at no charge as often as they want to come back for as long as they want to come back. And some of the guys are just not reachable. They just uh, they've never they've never had to work hard or endure any kind of discomfort. And those guys I usually dismiss from the program by about week three or so, and try to keep the good guys. Can you describe what that eight-week course looks like with? The, the general framework is? Yeah, we have, um, we have three areas of study. We've got a classroom uh, where we do lectures about an hour and a half every morning. Uh, of course, we've got horses and, and trimming. Uh, we have one to two days a week horses are brought into the school, and the rest of the time we're out in 15-passenger vans with trailers uh, out of different facilities. And then, of course, we've got the forge work. Um, students have to make two handmade shoes a week, uh, to turn in for grade and evaluation, and they all have different uses, either in therapeutic doings or different disciplines. You know, at the end of the program, the, my final written exam is 21 pages. It's all-encompassing of everything we've done. Forging, they've got to do two feet to an hour and a half to a test similar to what the AFA has for their certification, a, a kind of a grading system like that. And then they've got two hours where they have to hand-make a, a bar shoe of their choice, and it has to be nailable and fit a foot. And then a uh, square toe and trader with quarter clips to fit a foot. And so two hours for two shoes. Um, it produces guys that know how to do the work, and whether or not they're going to do it when they get out is a personal choice, but we sure aim to push them that way. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you and I have talked about it quite a bit, and the lines of that motivation and, and finding what will key in on, on certain students. You know, there's one story I always always like that you shared about letting go of the rock, finding that area that's outside of your comfort zone. Can you, can you share that now with the listeners? Yeah, that's my favorite story. I, I love that. It's from a small little paperback called Illusions. 
by an author named Richard Bach, B-A-C-H. And he's got a variety of stories in there. But the one that always seemed to, to stick with me is, and the students is, uh, and, and was part of my life as well. It's a story about these little creatures that existed. Their entire life, they were clinging on to a, this huge rock at the bottom of a fast-moving stream. And they lived that way for generations. And one day, one of the little creatures says, you know, I'm, I'm getting tired of this. I'm getting bored. I, I want to go downstream and see what's there. And all his friends and family told him, oh, my gosh, no, you can't let go of the rock. And nobody who's ever let go of the rock has ever come back. The stream's going to wash you down to the bottom and beat you up and you're going to die. So the little creature started thinking and he said, you know what, I'm, I'm kind of dying now anyway with the life I have clinging onto this rock. And so he let go and sure enough, downstream he went and he got bruised and he, he got beat, but he didn't die. He figured out how to float. And after he figured out how to float and he was looking at all the wonderful things, he found out that he could teach himself to swim so he could go over here and over there and up and down and sideways and a freedom that, that he didn't even know existed in life. And so as he's going downstream, he sees another colony of, uh, of creatures, little rock clingers, and he swims down to them. And they think that he is some kind of supernatural being, that, he's, that he, he swam down to the rock. And he tried to explain, no, I'm just like you guys. I'm, I'm a rock clinger. But I decided to let go of the rock, and I taught myself how to, how to float and then how to swim. And, and it's a great freedom. And after a while, he got bored and said, okay, I'm going to let go of the rock. Who wants to go? But nobody wanted to go. They all wanted to cling onto their rocks. They thought he was supernatural, totally different. And uh, downstream, he went on another adventure. Students that come to my school have been clinging onto a rock of some kind, and then they made a decision to become self-employed, and that's letting go of the rock. Some of them are going to learn to float and swim, and some of them are going to be beat up and quit. So it's, I think it's an apropos stu- uh, story about life. Right, right. And it's, it's, it's good to hear at any point. I think we can always get too attached to a rock at some point in our careers where, you know, do we just get satisfied and, and forget to push ourselves? Yeah, that's the same thing with, you know, the AFA and certification, uh, the AAPF and, and their endorsement program. All these things are, are outside the comfort zone when you've got to be able to have someone else evaluate your work and, and push yourself to do better. And lots of guys get out of school. They get into a little community. They're the shewer there. They live and work on a little tunnel clinging onto a rock. Um, I mean, look at the summit. The summit is probably the greatest educational opportunity farriers have ever had in the history of horseshoeing to be able to, to increase their knowledge and skill levels. It's just phenomenal. And yet it should be 30,000 guys that shoe horses should be there, guys and gals. Shoeing horses should be there. But there's, what, 1,300 or so that, that show up. It's it, it just shows how many people cling on to their, uh, their little rocks and their little local areas. So with all the students you've seen come through your school over the decades, what, what separates the unsuccessful student from the successful student? Well, that's an interesting question, Jeremy. That, because there are students that I think that don't have a chance of ever being successful, that two years later they're buying homes and doing great. It's an internal drive. It's not just... That's not what you see. There's always been controversy ever since I've been a farrier about how schools will take absolutely anybody and they don't screen students, blah, blah, blah. I don't know how you screen that internal drive. Horseshoeing is something that you either love to do or you hate. There's no in-between. If you don't love shoeing horses, it's a miserable way to make a living. So I think it's an internal drive. And I, and I try to ignite that little flame in, in the students to be able to take control of their life to be able to uh, 
to have a freedom that no other job offers. I mean, we're unregulated by any kind of government entity. We can set our own times, our own schedules. The idea that somebody would have to beg permission to take an afternoon off to watch one of their kids play a soccer championship game or something is beyond my concept. It's, it's something that, that you should have control over in your life. And so I, sometimes you can see it in students and, and sometimes they're, they're pretty good at saying one thing and doing another. It's just, I've never been able to get a firm hold on what that internal drive is going to do to them. A lot of them have an employee mentality. So they're here in the school and we're saying, do this, do this, do this. And they just rock and roll. They're wonderful. And then they come out of school and they have to take total control of their own life. They have to make themselves get up, make themselves do quality work, reevaluate their work, improve. And they just don't have, have what's inside to keep themselves functioning as self-employed. Yeah. And I think this, there's always a struggle too when someone's out of school, if they're trying to build their career, not taking on bad horses. And it, it, it's somewhat easier to see it from down the road versus when you're trying to start yeah, out, trying yeah. to get who you can. What advice do you have for farriers who are still struggling with this? Don't do it. When I started shoeing horses, 1974, all through the uh, middle 70s, they were livestock. And uh, I was pretty handy with ropes and I could tie up legs or throw a horse down. I shot a lot of horses with uh, all four feet tied together, a two by six across their across their chest and a bale of hay on one end and all four feet sticking up on the other end. And uh, I was just trying to, I was trying to eat. I was just trying to make enough money to, to survive. And every day was some kind of wrestling match with horses, but that's not what I wanted. And I was out back uh, of a really nice barn and I had this thoroughbred horse that nobody wanted to shoe and I had to throw it down to shoe it. And, uh, the lady said, look, her, my girlfriend has a horse that lost a shoe and she has an appointment, a show tomorrow. And she can't get a hold of her farrier. Would you have the time to replace the shoe? And I told her, sure. So finished the horse and we let him up. She's doctoring the horse. I'm doctoring me because there's always some kind of wreck. And she goes into the barn and she comes out a little bit later and she's all embarrassed. And she said, uh, my girlfriend has a really nice horse and she doesn't want someone like you shoeing it. And it dawned on me that my reputation was doing bad horses. I, I didn't want to do bad horses. That was when I started out. Those are the people that would call me. Uh, and so I was developing a reputation doing nothing but bad horses. And then as I was thinking about that, I was working on another big horse with a lady. She wouldn't let me use my ropes or anything on it. And it was kind of thumping on me. And she saw that I was, I was getting a little upset. And she stopped me as I was going back to the anvil and looked me in the eye and said, young man, if I see any blood on that horse, it better be yours. And it was like a light bulb that went on. And I just from that point on, I just stopped doing bad horses. It's not even open for conversation. I had developed a reputation of doing only bad horses, so I couldn't get good horses. And the people with the bad horses could care less if I got injured and my career was over on their horse. So I tell my guys, uh, the best way to chew a bad horse is to put your ignition key between your thumb and forefinger, exert it in the ignition, turn it clockwise, and uh, wave as you're leaving. You know, how, how do you handle customers like that? Are you, you know, are you honest? How direct are you that, look, you, your horse puts me in a dangerous situation. I don't want to work with you. It's a thing that horseshoers get, are notorious for. We're call, we get the bad reputation of never calling back our clients. And what I find is that people don't like to have any adversarial relationships, conflict. And so farriers will shoe somebody's horse and they, won't, they don't want to do it again because it's ill matter. So they just don't call them back. And I don't think that they're doing their fellow brothers and sisters in the profession one bit of good. 
I think the owner needs to know that you're not coming back because uh, the working environment, the horse's behavior, whatever it is, wherever you're discharging the client, you need to tell them professionally why you're not going to come back. Return the call. You're not going to work for them. And this is why. They're all going to tell you that they never had a horse and uh, have a problem until you. They're all going to try to stomp all over you. But don't let them define you and, and just refuse to leave these horses. But fire them for cause. Always fire a client for cause, not just by refusing to return the call. Regarding farriers working in an area, what are your thoughts on taking on new horses? How much uh, work do you want to put into communicating with the previous farrier or, or just reaching out to them? Well, that's the good part now because you can do that. When I started shoeing horses, uh, I can remember I'd only been out of school maybe six, seven months. I pulled into a barn and I had one horse to shoe there and the guy that was the, the regular ferry for the barn was there and it ended up being in a fist fight. He was kicking over my animal, throwing me out and ended up in a, in a fist fight. We don't have it anymore. I, I think it's an absolute unbelievable luxury in our profession now that you can pick up the phone and call another farrier and have a happy person on the other end telling you what you need to know about, about some horse. And, and I think that's a, that's, that's something that's, can't be replaced in this industry that you can call up the other farrier. Yeah. Do you, if you find out that the client owes that farrier money or some other situation, mistreatment of that previous farrier, how do you handle that with the prospective client? Well, once again, I, I, I think you, you fire clients for a cause. I mean, I would tell them, look, you know, uh, Johnny's a friend of mine and you've got to pay issues. So you need to resolve that with him prior to me coming out. And uh, people get upset. Boy, do they get mad about that. But those are the kind of people you don't want in your clientele anyway. And it's kind of self-screening because uh, there's people out there that try to define you. You know, that lady that thought I should bleed, not her horse, was trying to define me and my job. I'm cannon fodder. Getting hurt was just part of my profession. And so you can't let these people define you. They're never going to own up and say, oh, gosh, you're right. I'm sorry. Let me call Johnny and make that good. They're going to blame him. They're going to be mad at you, but they're clients you don't want. And if enough farriers would fire for cause, I think uh, a lot of these people would kind of straighten up a little bit because they couldn't get work done. So then as we're developing our client list and, uh, you know, you have a good business growing, what advice do you have for maybe calling that list or grading your clients and, and you know, uh, I guess moving up to where you can charge more? Well, I have, uh, we go through in class pretty early on a rating and, and I teach these guys to give the clients an ABCD rating based on a criteria and their horse an ABCD rating based on the criteria. And so when we go out and shoe a horse or a horse is brought in here, as soon as the job's completed, I'm going to, I ask the student, okay, so grade the horse and grade the client. And of course, as a horseshoeing school, we're not going to get a clients with a horses because they've already got barriers. But it starts from thinking about uh, the classifications. You know, one of, one of my criteria is when the client cares more about the emotional well-being of the horse than your physical safety, you can't work for them. That's a CD client immediately. Uh, you may have to put up with those for the first year or so, but you shoe a horse, you pull out of the driveway, you stop, you enter uh, ABCD grade for the client based upon a criteria that we've, we've gone over. And an ABCD for the horse, again, based on a criteria we've discussed, and that goes in the book. And as your book starts to fill, you know exactly who you're going to get rid of. You get rid of the Ds, 
till there's no more D's and you get rid of the C's till there's no more C's and you, you make your practice grow in a direction that you want it to grow in. Is that important? Uh, you know, as soon as you finish that work before you drive off that property to grade them when the thoughts of that client are really fresh with you right there? Yeah, because if you don't and you try to reproduce that six weeks later, you're going to talk yourself into, well, I do need that $100 shoeing and uh, they weren't that bad and, that, and that's how you're going to get hurt. You need to do it when it's fresh in your mind. You need to do it so that you don't end up Furriers have a problem with bad horses and bad clients, and they just suck it up, suck it up, and then they blow up. And when you blow up and you get angry, either at the horse or the client, your reputation is that you're a hothead. And by, by immediately, with the feelings that you're feeling right now, the environment that you were shooing in, the client, the horse, now's the time to give them a grade because that's the most accurate. So I think some fairies are going to be going through a difficult time with the circumstances uh, that's affecting business and the economy at this time. What advice do you have for, I guess, uh, sustaining your business? Um, I guess making sure you're, you're delivering everything to your client that, that you promise in, in this time and, and not losing business. Well, unfortunately, I think there's going to be some people that, that are going to lose business. A lot of the horse shows and activities have been canceled. So, you're going to be losing some of those shoeings because of that now. But if you provide the clients with what they want, these hard times are not going to hit you very, very hard. A lot of farriers think that they sell horseshoes. We're a service-based business. We sell a service, that's shoeing horses. And in essence, we're in the recreation business because most of our clients have horses. That's their discretionary money. Uh, that's their recreational funds that they're using. And, uh, You've got to be able to treat the clients very well all year long, every year, so that when hard times come, they're going to be staying with you. Uh, and, and a lot of the guys are sending out notices to all their clients, letting, letting them know that, that uh, foot care, working with the analyst, foot care is an essential business. And uh, we have a preference that, that we work by ourselves. We'll pull in, shoe the horse. Um, you, can use a, you can use a Visa card or a debit card. We can... We can credit the account so that we don't have to have personal interaction. We can still uh, still maintain the good quality care of your horse. You know, I think another interesting point, and, and you know, a little different than what I had just asked, but, uh, you know, it, it reminded me of what, what you've often told me, too, and let's let's remember it for those good times of of the idea of, of customers wanting discounts, issues like that, that uh, you've always told me never subsidize horse ownership. Yeah, I, I tell my guys from day one that our job is not to subsidize somebody else's hobby. People, people have horses as a hobby. Very few of our clients require a horse to be able to make a living and to exist. These are all their recreation purposes. And I refuse to subsidize somebody else's hobby with price breaks uh, at all. I won't even, won't even discuss and I encourage my students to be firm. This is somebody's hobby, their discretionary income. I, I couldn't walk around uh, Plymouth, the town of Plymouth, and everybody I see says, hey, look, I need 100 bucks. I'm into racing sailboats, and I need new sails, and, and I think you ought to uh, help out. They think you're nuts, but yet <laughs> horse owners will go, look, it's kind of tough times, and this is bad, and this is bad, and I need a discount. And I, I don't think getting in the habit of subsidizing somebody else's uh, hobby is a uh, is a good place to be. It, it, it'll never end. Yeah. To uh, 
change gears on you now. Um, you know, your school's based there in California, and uh, I think most people listening would would probably fairly assess that California has a high uh, regulation state, is a high regulation state, uh, but they're taking it to new extremes in terms of education and how that affects your school. I guess to begin, can you can you give a little bit of history of what's going on in the state and, and how it's affecting people attending your school? Well, to say California's high regulation is like like Noah saying, hmm, it looks like rain. <laughs> Uh, that's a little bit of an understatement. It is. Unfortunately, California is now in a position where the far left control the governor, all elected uh, offices. They have a supermajority in, in both the Senate and the Assembly, and they can pretty well do whatever they want to do. There's, there, there is absolutely no opposition um, to any of their programs. They decided uh, quite a few years back that they wanted to get rid of all private education and put everything under the public school sector. So they've been aggressively going after private schools uh, and that's small schools like mine, as well as private colleges and trying to get them to close down. So they tighten the regulations. It seems every year, a lot of schools have closed thousands of schools have closed in California because they just can't do business here. I'm just too stupid to quit. So I'm still here and still running. Can you talk about what the current legal battle is? Yeah. The legal battle I have now is that the state of California uh, pass a law that says that you cannot attend any state licensed trade or vocational school in California unless you have a high school diploma or GED. So I had a, uh, a young man uh, come to my school, wife and two kids, 26 years old. He had saved up the uh, tuition money. It was his own money. They came to the school, but he didn't meet that criteria. So I couldn't take him. And, and it was unbelievable to me that the government is saying that unless you meet this criteria, you're not allowed to use your own money to invest in your own life in a chance to make better. Uh, they just refuse. I mean, he can go on to Craigslist and spend $15,000 on a car and nobody bats an eye, but to go to a, to go to a school, a trade school, like horseshoeing, uh, welding school, massage therapy, just pick a school. The state of California says you have to you have to have a GED or high school diploma. Now, the interesting thing is that in, in California, you could attend a community college. You can enroll in a community college without a high school diploma or GED, but you can't go to a trade school. So I've got a, uh, a suit. The, state, the Supreme Court held quite a few years ago that teaching is covered under the First Amendment. And so we have a, we're waiting for the uh, Ninth Court to render its decision. And we're hoping that what they're saying is that the state of California has to have a compelling reason as to why certain trades and vocations require a high school diploma. So we're, we're waiting for that now. Have they given any reason for that, for their thinking on this? Well, I don't think that they, that they thought about it. Um, they've had problems regulating the profession because there's so many different types of trade schools and stuff. They just made a mess out of everything. So in 2010, they uh, decided to take a section out of the United States uh, Education Code that had to do with the qualifications for Title IV funding or federal student loans, and they plopped that into California law, and they made it applicable to everybody, whether you're getting a loan or not. And so the requirement for Title IV student loans is that uh, you have a high school diploma or GED. 
So they just decided to apply that across the board to California school. I think it was it's an attempt to uh, to close down schools, uh, private schools, because you can attend a community college in California without a high school diploma or GED. You just can't go to a trade school. Yeah, I wonder how much of it they just want everything under the purview of the government. Well, it's being backed by several different organizations. The California Teachers Association, which is really far left. The California State Employees Association, which, again, is really far left, uh, pumping millions of dollars into politicians uh, with the idea of closing all privately owned schools in California and putting everything under the public school sector. So what's your timetable now for uh, finding out? Well, we're just going to wait for the uh, the Ninth Court's uh, uh, decision. And, you know, now that we have the coronavirus, everybody's shut down. The court systems are or shut down on minimal work, so it's probably going to extend. We had assumed we would hear from them uh, by the end of March, but it doesn't look like we'll probably hear from them until this summer, depending on how long this uh, pandemic lasts. Sure. This isn't the first roadblock, the first obstacle you've gone through. What what keeps you motivated to just not say to hell with it and, and move on to something else? Well, first of all, this is what I really love. Starting a shoeing practice uh, or any kind of business where you're self-employed and the sole proprietor, it, it's just like raising a child. I mean, you nurture it and, and you develop it and, and, and you're with it for so long that it becomes part of you. And I remember a speech, probably the, one of the few speeches I remember in high school history class, but it was Patrick Henry. And Patrick Henry was talking to uh, the Virginia legislature, trying to get them involved in the uh, American Revolution. And he's asking what what price do you pay for peace and having domestic tranquility? What price do you pay for, for peace? And slavery, that's the essence of a peaceful existence because you have no options in life. And the idea that a, the government can just continue to decide uh, how a small privately owned business uh, can operate and what they can do and what they can't do, uh, it just goes against my grain. Uh, you know, America became the greatest country in the history of the world in less than 200 years. And it was because our founding fathers decided that all of our rights were given by God, not by government. And you, the government, only had these very few rights enumerated in the Constitution. And therefore, everybody's entrepreneur spirit could come out. Uh, Americans are no different than any other country in the world, except that we had a system that allowed us to, to just explore all of our possibilities and do as much as we possibly could be for the benefit of ourselves uh, in our community. And, and I think that's the way it should be now. And I think that government has got to the point where we have a birthright to dissent against government involvement in our lives. And uh, I firmly believe it. And I'm, I'm committed to that till the day I die. What sort of dialogue do you have with other horseshoeing schools? You know, there's, there's, quite a range of different types of schools, but how, how much do you communicate among, among all the uh, school facilitators? Not, not much on this kind of issue. I mean, uh, I learned a long time ago, I'm kind of cut from a little bit of a different cloth. In, in 1996, when this law first came out, uh, they have in California what's called a sunset clause. And the sunset clause says that after five years of a new agency being formed, they go up for review and the legislature has to make a overt decision to continue the agency or the agency dies. And so in 1996, I went to a, a meeting in the Capitol at the Assembly Higher Education Committee and 
signed up for my three-minute talk, and I explained how this agency governing uh, private schools uh, was really not capable of doing the job. They, they were harming small, single-owned schools like mine that teach self-employment. And So when I walked out of the, the higher education after my three-minute talk, the deputy director of the agency came up and told me that I had to shut up or they would close me down. Uh, I wasn't allowed to talk to my, uh, to my representatives. So that's sort of the big fight. And um, I was amazed at how many of the other private vocational schools, I had to buy a new fax machine. I was getting so many, so many faxes from schools saying, let's go, let's go, let's go. And when the big meeting came, when we had a chance before the Senate Education Committee, I was there by myself. And nobody else wanted to play. So I don't like having any part of my life depended on somebody else's performance in order for me to exist. Uh, so the other schools, uh, you know, they, they get along with their, with the government agencies and they make amends and they do what they have to do uh, to keep the, the, the school open. And I think they think I'm a little bit wacky to fight the government, but it's we, the people, not them, the government. I get little sympathetic nods and I hope you do well and best wishes and stuff, but, uh, nobody has shown an interest in, in involving themselves at this level. So outside of the school in this this battle and, and helping your students, uh, where are you finding more motivation in horseshoeing? Uh, you know, any subjects in particular? Yeah, I I collect horseshoeing books, and I'm, I'm an avid collector. I've got well over 200 in my collection. The earliest one is 1674. And the history of horseshoeing and, and how it's come about from the, oh, the late 1700s when mostly we were veterinarians and, and shoers were about the same up until the mid-80s when things started to split off and farriers started to, be, to go on their own. Um, the different theories and, and, and the, the concepts are, are just absolutely fascinating to me. I, I was reading a, a thing by uh, one of the guys, uh, Bryce Clark, and, and he developed 40 different kinds of shoes that could be applied to horses' feet without the use of nails in 1815. And so <laughs> here we go again. Uh, I found the, uh, the concept when I was in, uh, when I was in horseshoeing school, we were taught that we trimmed the, the sole down until it gave under thumb pressure, which it just absolutely scares me today when I think of that. But uh, in reading a book by a guy named uh, Gamby, T-A-M-D-E-E, uh, 1847, he lays this directly at the head of a guy named Coleman, who, who um, was a complete pompous idiot. He was 24 years old, and by hook and crook and people he knew, he ended up being the director of the London Veterinarian School when it opened in 1792. He took it over a couple years later because of deaths and retirements, and... Uh, that guy uh, started the trend of just the most horrible, uh, most horrible practices in horseshoeing that obviously lasted 150 years. I think that stuff is absolutely fascinating to find out that today as farriers, um, we're not really reinventing the wheel. We, we need to stop on all this stuff and move on to uh, all the wonderful research that's been being done. Uh, show us new insights into the bi biomechanical movement of horses and how these anatomical structures work within each other. Uh, the new work being done on surfaces is just fascinating to me. 
it, it, it's just something I do. I, I my time off is uh, set with my feet up and reading a reading a horseshoeing book that was printed 150 years ago and, and amazes me at the similarities. Yeah, what well, was old is is new again. Um, you you mentioned yeah. uh, Clark's 40 ideas for shoes. Uh, how many of those held water in your mind? None. Yeah. None. He had he boiled it down to five. Most of them were kind of useless type type endeavors. Um, that required bands and all kinds of, of, they didn't have the adhesive technology that we have today. So uh, it makes nailless shoes uh, a little more practical today than they had back then. So it was all a matter of different mechanical means to try to keep a shoe on. So we didn't have to drive a nail in the foot. You know, the, 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 the fun thing about this is there's a book by a guy named Miles um, that was just a writer and, and he oversaw shoeing and therefore he had opinions of shoeing. Um, and they, they stated nails are nails are bad for the feet, and so okay, shoes are bad for the horse's feet as compared to being totally perfectly barefoot, unless you put the horse to work, in which case barefoot then becomes more of a detriment than the shoes. And so uh, these guys tend to have a theme in these books that they write of saying nails are bad for the horse's feet, and this is why. And and a lot of times they're correct, but what does it offset? So they don't, they don't include that. They just make a, you know, somebody comes out and says, uh, you know, leather pads cause more concussion and everybody panics. I don't want to use leather pads. Well, no, but we're, what's the positive side of it? It, it helps. You can contour them, uh, get better traction uh, for the horse. You can protect the foot better than you can with plastic. So what's the give and take? You just can't come out with just one statement. Nails are bad. Therefore, we shouldn't put them in horses' feet. Um, it's interesting to see how they how they phrase their their questions, and it always ends up that uh, the horse goes back to shoes and nails. Yeah, I think it, there's always the absence of context that give get sort of the first indication of a gimmick or a theory that's that's rather baseless. Particularly when the theories are based on someone who doesn't actually shoe horses. I think that's kind of cool. I, I love those books. Yeah. Well, again, what's old is new again. I just, you know, I, yep. I think it's the problem a lot of fairies still suffer through with their clients. That's a fact. I mean, it's interesting because uh, there's a, a, a book, William Hunting uh, did a book. He was a veterinarian that was in charge of supervising 6,000 shoeings a month for the British Cavalry. And he wrote a book, Hunting's Guide to Horseshoeing. And I think it was, uh, oh gosh, I'd have to look it up. But I think it was, it was in the late 1800s somewhere. And uh, he says in there uh, a couple of interesting things. One is that no other profession that he knows of where people totally ignorant of what we do presume to dictate how we do it. That was, what, 130 years ago, and, and we're still having that issue. <laughs> and then the barefoot craze came around again. About every 30, 40 years, it's invented as if it's brand new. He just has a statement in there that no businessman in the world would go to the trouble and expense of shoeing a horse if it was not needed, this topic is closed. And then he goes on to his book. So yeah. it's amazing the similarities. Well, and there's another thing that, that cycles through every now and then, although there there seems to be more lasting power in barefoot today. And maybe that, that's more augmented by social media and the internet. Uh, what, what do you think is the definitive statement, you know, for uh, the client who says, hey, I I think my horse should go barefoot, but use the farrier seat. Otherwise, uh, see that there's a need for the horse to, to still wear shoes. 
Well, um, it, it's going to be the horse's health. The, the, the horse's pain-free existence is going to be the turning factor for me uh, on this, whether he can stay barefoot or not. Um, and it's going to be the based on, we don't, we don't just put shoes on to protect the bottom of the foot when we're riding. We put shoes on to, to help transfer loads from confirmation defects. Uh, we put shoes on for traction, for protection, uh, for different disciplines. So the fact that you're not riding a horse um, doesn't mean he can stay barefoot. Uh, can the horse go the prescribed interval but between uh, trims uh, pain-free? It will have no lasting effect on his feet. Bad quarter cracks, underrun heels, uh, chronic founder, club foot, all those need to be protected whether the people ride the horse or not. It, it's, it's kind of funny because in these books, and I can't find the exact book, but they talk about, about how the concept of letting the horse's foot rest got started. These horses were on a, some of these horses, uh, the, the carriage horses that, uh, that worked in the cities and, and the carts that were on the, the, the gravel roads back then, uh, they would be shod uh, anywhere from 35, uh, 30, uh, 28 to 35 days. So every four weeks or so, these guys were getting completely shot again. And that means you're putting a lot of holes in the hoof with your nails. And if a horse loses a shoe and twists it and tears out a chunk of wall, uh, it got to the point where the, the horseshoer couldn't hang a shoe on that foot and expect that horse to do his job. And so they would say, look, turn him out and let him grow some new feet. And the horse can rest because he's not pulling the wagon and doing his job. And that has stayed with us all the way up still today where people go, okay, it's wintertime. I've got to pull the shoes and let my horse's feet rest. Well, no, now we have polyurethanes, acrylics. We have all kinds of methods of adhering shoes to protect the horse's foot or to protect his limb for confirmation or to shoe for different diseases or pathology that's in the foot. And we don't have to let the foot rest. That was only out of necessity because there was no other way to, to, uh, to apply any kind of apparatus to the bottom of the foot. You've talked about a few different product types, uh, modern materials. In your time shoeing, what are the products that you see are, are the, the, I guess, the greatest advancements for farriers? Oh, gosh, you know, I, I, I think without a doubt it's going to be the, the polyurethanes and the acrylic materials that, that are out there, uh, the different types of adhesives, have made a, just a, an unbelievable difference um, you know, I can remember horses that would lose a shoe and lose a quarter and you're punching nail holes in the toe and trying to drive one way back in the heels to keep a shoe on them because they had to, another show to do. Uh, you know, they were up for a belt buckle or up to win a saddle. Um, and, and now they, we can do all kinds of stuff with them. It's just amazing protecting the feet. We can change elevations. Uh, we can glue on shoes that can't take the hammering. I mean, I, I can remember nailing on to a five-month-old babies that had angular limb deformities because we didn't have any other options at that time. And, and when you use elasticon tape and tape that it, it just, the foot just atrophies in a matter of weeks. So I think the polyurethanes and, and the acrylic materials have just broadened our toolkit as farriers uh, for being able to help horses. It's been a, a phenomenal thing to watch. What are you most optimistic about for the industry looking ahead? Oh, I think that I think I wish I was 25 years old starting to shoe again. I, I, I'd like to start it all over again, but keep the knowledge I have now. It's turning into a uh, a profession, and it's I think that the the recognition for the professionalism uh, is starting to be seen by clients. I, 
you know, they, they've got the guys up in British Columbia that are revisiting this whole idea of, of um, having some government involvement in our profession to show us that we're legitimate and give us respect. And uh, respect comes one-on-one. And, and the quality of shoeing that's out here now, it is it is dramatic compared to what it was 40 years ago, almost 50 years ago for me. It's just dramatic to see the changes. I think that the, that the amount of money guys are getting for horses, their, their lifestyle uh, that they have from shoeing horses uh, – my gosh, look at all the research that's coming out. Uh, you know, I, I hate to be redundant, but she should go back to the summit. And, and I come back with 30 pages of notes from, from the fantastic lectures that come uh, that are just pushing the edge of, of the biomechanics of the foot and, and different shoeing applications and, and pads and everything you can think of every year. It, it, it's a dramatic improvement over the previous year. It's, I hope that I live to be a hundred and, uh, and still actively involved in this profession. I'll have to send you a check for the mention of the summit. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's, but really, Jeremy, it's something that it, 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 nowhere else in the history of my shoeing since 1974 has there been a place to go to learn anything you want to learn about what we do for a living. We go to clinics, but they have a specialty. We go to a clinic as a forging clinic. Uh, we go here, maybe one guy is going to lecture, and the rest of the day is spent shoeing a horse. And and nowhere else on this planet can you go and just uh, – I'm kind of a, a horseshoe nerd. I just – I love all the stuff that's going on with the farriers, the studies of movements, and and uh, the different researches on what's occurring within the feet and breaking the new norms. We're getting rid of all that anecdotal stuff, you know? Great-grandpa said this, grandpa said that, and my dad said that, and I'm saying this. We're getting rid of all that kind of stuff within our profession and getting science-based opinions on, on our methodologies and treatment. I think that is just phenomenal. And where else do you get it? Where else, where else do you get all that information? You would have to spend five hours a day on the Internet to get one-tenth of what you can get in one week uh, at the summit. So... I, I, that's that's the highlight of my uh, my shoeing years of summit. I, I appreciate you saying that, and I also would say that I think the reason the summit's been successful is is because of you. You've always uh, been free with your information there, both as a moderator, as as a speaker, and as a uh, just a general attendee sharing things in the networking session. So so thank you and. Uh, also appreciate you joining us for this this episode and sharing some of your thoughts, Bob. Well, I'm I'm honored that you would ask, Jeremy, and I I am always ready for anything to help the summit uh, improve the quality of what we do. All right, thank you. I'd like to thank Bob for sitting down with us, and also to Pinwoods Equine for sponsoring this episode. In our next episode, we'll sit down and talk with Terry Stever about his career and his thoughts on horseshoeing. Until then, thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.